Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today, we're listening to Let's Talk Black Power, a show about all the ways that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people resist, refuse, transform, and reimagine. And in this, the 20th year of Let's Talk, this is your host, Ruby Warden. Yama, you are listening from unceded sovereign Guri, Murray, and Marty lands. And this is Let's Talk Black Power. My name's Ruby Wharton. I'm a Gomeroy Kumamaritiyina and host for this amazing program. Today, what you're going to be listening to is a great panel from three really amazing people that facilitated it, not including myself, um, but the amazing Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, CEO extraordinaire Deb Kilroy, and the amazing Nico Brocky. Um, so. It was a really great night where we got to talk about trans solidarity and abolition. And those are two really important topics that we're going to be covering a lot throughout the season. And it's just remarkable that we were able to capture Friday night's panel on just to show you guys just how amazing that really was. Nico put forth some really, really challenging, in-depth and thoughtful questions that allowed us to really dig deep into what the inner workings, what collective imagining, what abolition and practice looks like in our day-to-day life and what trans and queer solidarity looks like in our day-to-day life. And it covers the importance of encouraging these kinds of conversations in our in our normal spaces. So we had this panel over at Echo and Bounce on Friday night in Woolloongabba, and it was a really, really remarkable night, jam-packed. The audience was really intimate and lovely. The questions were just out. I just can't give Nico her props enough on this one. The, they were really challenging. They had us all in tears, had us laughing, had us thinking. It was the first time I'd ever written notes to partake on a panel and I, I told many people that night. But it was really just something that we got quite carried away with. It went for 90 minutes. It was super intimate and I don't think we wanted to stop the conversation at all. So <laughs> if you want to just enjoy, put the kettle on and find a nice sunny spot, and listen to these really, really amazing people. So I know each of you do a lot of public speaking and in a time of genocide against Palestinian people, I thought it might be more appropriate to ask each of you to respond to a poem by a Palestinian writer instead of asking a first question. So um, Deb, as a slam poet performing at the 10th International Sisters Inside Conference, (laughs) and also I'll throw in there my boob fundraiser, um, which was very amazing. Um, I will ask you to respond to a poem, and I will get the pronunciation wrong, sorry. Moran Makukul. So the poem is, In order for me to write poetry that isn't political, I must listen to the birds. And in order for me to hear the birds, the war planes must be silent. Okay. So this poem by Marwan Makul reminds us that claiming to be apolitical is not only a political stance in itself, but also a privilege. I think it takes an incredible strength to create something beautiful, 
let alone to endeavour to create and to dream amidst chaos and strife, to be able to constantly strive to turn your pain into power. It takes so much because it needs so much. And art is inherently political because it is not possible to pursue beauty without also pursuing justice and freedom. It is the struggle for freedom that gives life and by extension, our art, beauty, clarity and purpose. More power to every poet and writer in Palestine right now who are giving wings to their words. May their words continue to breed a new and common language of resistance and a shared dream of liberation. Because we may have bars to cage us and borders to separate us, we may have bars and borders maintained by violence, but the revolution is our contraband, as is our solidarity for each other, as is poetry, and the poets are, only, are our sorry, freedom fighters. Long live the poets who write under the watchful eye of the state, who break language free from the machinations of tyranny. But I want to say something about the spirit of Marwan McCall as a fellow incarcerated human. Before this most recent war and genocide, there had been a long crackdown on critical voices and Israeli authorities had been using several tactics to contain and control people, including restrictions on movement. In April of 2015, Makol traveled to Lebanon through Jordan for a reading. Since 2000, under Israel law, Lebanon had been designated as an enemy state and Israel passport holders are prohibited from visiting, visiting the country. Michael's decision to defy the restriction brought about a barrage of Israel's vitriol against him, which led to his detention at Ben Gurun Airport upon his return from Lebanon. Since the spring of 2015, Michael had been placed in detention every single time he travelled through Tel Aviv. He said in an interview, and I'm quoting, there's a culture of inflicting desperation on critical voices to force them into giving up, end quote. However, in spite of the imprisonments, Michael responded with the words in his poem, Arab at Ben Gurion Airport, demonstrating his fierce determination to fight Israel discrimination. His poem reads, who prepared your ba bag, she asked. Osama bin Laden, I replied. Do you have any sharp object, objects, she asked. My feelings, my skin colour and my eastern looks, I replied. Thank you, Deb. Um, one of the many things you taught me is how we, what we talk is, affects how we think and how we feel. So, yeah, always telling me about the power of words. As a, uh, Sandy, as a professor, I will ask you to respond to a poem by Raphael Aluria. I am an academic. Probably the toughest thing I have at home is an expo marker. But if the Israelis go door to door to massacre us, I'm going to use that marker to throw it at the Israeli soldiers, even if that is the last thing that I'd be able to do. I recall reading that the first time um, and, and just feeling despair because, at, because all of these things about what can we do, but also feeling the power of it. I mean, it's a really powerful statement. So uh, um, I've got a little bit of notes here for, for myself just to make sure I cover off on the right stuff and then I wouldn't mind saying a couple of things. So as academics who centre social justice, we're all activists in our work or we're nothing. I, I think that's a, a standard. Um, as Aboriginal people, how, can't, you know, how can we find ourselves not centering abolition and a calling out of violence? Um, in all of the ways that, um, that we can. Talking about the hypocrisy 
of being stuck with an, an implement that has a very specific purpose, a purpose of, of, of sharing information. Um, it hasn't surprised me that academics who do work around justice and the state, around prisons and criminologies, have been silent on the genocide in Palestine, at the same time as they argue for better and more prisons. Even as the biggest case in my 57 years has been brought internationally, silence has been really resounding. Um, and Rafat could not be silent. I mean, this is a really powerful statement. Um, and nor should we about inequities and injustices, but also about this genocide specifically. Um, you know, the, the toughest thing I have at home is an expo marker. What a powerful object. And, you know, this was not the toughest thing, actually, that they would have had at home, but it was the toughest thing. And reminding people that while the Israeli forces were um, there on this stolen land arguing that um, arguing that everybody was a soldier, um, actually what Rufat reminded people was that uh, he was a thinker um, and also that that was a lie. Um, and also that he was a fighter um, because when we do anti-colonial work, uh, it comes in all of these forms all at the same time. And, and that's, that's why this poem is so powerful. Um, and if you haven't had a chance to really absorb it, listen to it again. Um, this idea, I'm going to use that marker to throw it at the Israeli soldiers even if it's the last thing I would be able to do. Uh, Ruby... Um, as a change maker who likes to obviously set the colony on fire, I'll ask you to respond to the poem also by Rafait Aluria. If I must die, you must live to tell my story, to tell my things, to buy a piece of cloth and some strings, make it white with a long tail, so that a child somewhere in Gaza, while looking heaven in the eye, awaiting for his dad who left in a blaze, and bid no one farewell, not even to his flesh, not even to himself. Seize the kite, my kite you made, flying up above and thinks for a moment an angel is there bringing back love. If I must die, let it bring hope, let it be a tale. You know, every time I read or hear that, just waters your eyes. Because you really know what the sentiment is. And, um, you know, if we must be born to be torn by wall, please let our names be refat. Trenches of war may dim our light, but let our name be ethos. Let our love warm your frosted fingers as it clutches white strings, tied to our joy, our heart, our things. Let our time be purposeful, our liberation a phase for some. I might not live, but you might just have one. When I hear those poems, I, I just remember my family. I remember everybody that I know who's relinquishing in a prison cell. And I know that there is no instant gratification. We all know that there's no instant gratification in this world and this fight. But if we can allow ourselves to learn 
to broaden our horizons, to read, to engage, to know our community, to fearlessly love, we may just raise the right generation that will. And that that's how, like, Chelsea, Chelsea Wadigo, Professor Chelsea says, cope. And I truly believe in cope because I believe that this sentiment is something that has been passed down for many generations and through many communities, through many revolutions. We may never know what freedom truly means until we unlock what's in our minds and what's holding us physically. But we still bring these beautiful babies into this world. We still fight for young gender diverse and young trans babies so that they don't ever have to experience the things that we do. They don't ever have to fight the same fights that we fight. And that's, that's let our names be refought. And I guess writing this response, I, I googled what his name meant. It means to elevate and to lift. And if that's not, that's not anything, you know. He didn't die for nothing. He lived up to his name and, and, and made younger people seek liberation. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Let's Talk Black Power on AAA Murray Country. And this is a recording of the Trans Prisoner Solidarity Fundraiser held at Echo and Bounce on Friday, the 2nd of February this year. We're going to jump right back into this recording, picking up as Nico poses the huge essential questions of what it might look like to create a world in which harm is just not punished, but actively accounted for, amended and addressed. Marion Carver, in her book, We Do This Till We Free Us, says, when you say, what will we do without prisons? What you're really saying is, what would we do without civil death, exploitation and state-sanctioned violence? This is an old question and the answer remains the same. Whatever it takes to build a society that does not continuously rearrange the trappings of annihilation and bondage while calling itself free. To know freedom or safety and to make peace with our own fears, passive punishments must be replaced with active amends and accountability. When I read this, I think about active amends and accountability as things like housing, healthcare, employment and education. Um, but So it's just a small question, but my question to each of you is what does abolitionist demands for active amends and accountability look like? I'll give it a go because I was having a think about it and, and, and I think I've changed and I think it's right that that happens. Look, the, the interpretation of this idea of what we do without prisons, and that's one of the ideas that's built into that, is often bound to the person who has little agency having to do the work, not the system that has all the power. And that's its own problem. And it's bound by these people. I think when I was talking about Rafat before, one of the things that I made a mistake about was to talk about some amorphous idea of academic. Just like you say, Ruby, this is about people sharing. Like, what are academics, what this notion of professor or somebody doing this work is, is, is people who are talking to one another and sharing the information and disseminating this and making sense of it and making sense of the world. And if they're not doing that, if they're hiding away, 
then if they're building a better prison, if they're not thinking about um, not thinking about this work to, you know, that that is always focused on, you know, um, being subject to the system. The system always becomes the solution um, for them, you know, and. And, and look, not to, to cast all of these people in the same light, but maybe a little bit, but it's worth noting that the colonial project um, being what it is, an extraordinary amount of people work across criminology got King's Awards last week. Um, you know, make it make sense at all. Um, but, and also back to the real question here, without housing, support, healthcare and all kinds of care, um, like Dr Shakita Bell tells us, and we have to say this all the time if we're trans and gender diverse, and if we're supporting people who are trans and gender diverse, gender-affirming care is primary care. Um, but in particular, how, how does it change um, those who are surveilled constantly? You know, and I, I think it's missing from a lot of the discussion. Um, you know, uh, and again, I'm, I'm holding to a counter, I'm holding a mirror up to people who are in the academy because they have a ridiculous level of power and absolutely no level of understanding. Um, and I see it time and time again, part of my job is to talk to our criminology area and to talk to criminology areas nationally um, in a weird way, that's part of my job now. And um, there is, there's more to it. Um, and I hate to be talking about the negatives with it. The positives with it, I think are, abolition delivers just does you know um, abolition is powerful uh, and if the question is always reducing to how do we make a better prison it is always going to come up with solutions that don't work um, for anyone no, I'm a baby abolitionist I should go I should go I should leave the big hitter for last um, you know, like when I think of active amends, I just think of all the work that we've so far done with N-toxic prisons. And, you know, that involves some pretty how-you-going conversations with how-you-going people who have turned into some pretty great allies and staunch advocates for the N-toxic prisons campaign. And they've actually heard what we said to them and appreciated that we've taken the time to sit with them because they've actively been turned away from every minister, from every community member. They've been shunned and called crazy. And all they do is care for those kids in Cairns and Gimoy who are suffering through the family policing system, the prison industrial complex. These are majority First Nations kids that are being forced into a community where they're victims to white supremacy to the point where they're being chased and mowed down and you have adults outrightly and proudly and loudly declaring their intent to kill, to harm, to hurt these young kids. And it's a great thing that Entoxic Prisons has been a vehicle to facilitate this kind of thinking 
it's about building a safer community. And it means that we have to know our neighbours. It means that we have to have uncomfortable conversations. And we have those uncomfortable conversations by validating each other's concerns. And at the end of the day, what those concerns come down to is wanting a safer community. When we met with people like this one woman, she is a great human who's gone and started her own little housing development to create a youth hub. Like, that's just incredible off of our own backs, off of our own ambition. When we spoke with her, everything online that you read about her, you could perceive her to want children to go to jail. The first thing she declared was, I don't want these kids in jail. I want to know where their parents are. I want to know how what I can do to help them. That's and that's the care factor. Although we may disagree, Uncle Bob Catter, he's my uncle, Brett. True God, he's my uncle. Leave that white man alone. <laughs> Leave him alone. We can appreciate in this continent, in this colony, it's really backwards. Nothing makes sense here. The way that the prison industrial complex manifests here doesn't make sense. We see so much harm and so much violence, but at the core of everything, there are fairly decent people that just want to be living a peaceful life and not bothering anybody. That's that common, common ground that we need to be willing to dive into. And... I guess I have nothing more to say than just take the chance to see through the indifference. Take the chance to have those uncomfortable conversations. Know your neighbour, especially if in instances of like domestic violence, we're not calling cops on our neighbours because we know our neighbours and that's how we build safer communities. We start from there and we start from there by reflecting upon our actions and our fears and the reasons why we wouldn't jump in and analyse those risk factors, I guess. And if we are so hesitant because of those risk factors, then we haven't killed the cops inside our head enough. That's the measurement. Uh, yeah, and that's where I'll leave it. Well, uh, Ruth, I just want to wind it back a bit what you're saying because... Uh, no, it's all right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, about Conti, the woman. What's her name? Oh, Perry. Perry Conti, right? She's this woman in Cairns who's always in the media and is, it's like, oh my God, she, they have conveyed her in the public arena as this white, privileged, maniacal woman that wants kids locked up, right? <clears throat> she would do stunts by having cars that had been burnt out and write, kids need to pay or punish kids and park them outside the members of parliament's uh, offices and that. And so when we went up to Cairns, I said, we need to talk to her <laughs> and turn her around. And that's right. As Ruby said, when we, she came and met with us, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, how's this going to go? But anyway, <laughs> let's go. We've got to have the hard conversations. You can't shy away. It, no, you just hang around the people that you know and get on with. You've got to actually have conversations um, with respect and dignity with each other and listen and then find out what's in common because we have a lot more in common, right, than what we don't. And... Perry, within about less than five minutes, we figured out very quickly that she actually did care about children and didn't want them harmed. So we sat with her for three hours. She would have sat there for three weeks with us. But, I mean, and we talked to her about the way that we walk alongside and work alongside and with um, the young women 
and the women that we support at Sisters Inside. And she's like, oh my God, no, one's ever, no one ever talks about this, what you're talking about, because everyone's up there feeding the same carceral bullshit, use the same carceral strategies. That's the only response you ever get from anybody and everyone. And, that's, and she said, hey, she, bought, um, she saw this little kid down on the Esplanade playing with a, a football or a soccer ball and the, t the tourist zone and they took it and he was upset. So she went and bought a dozen balls and they were in her car. And she said, do you know anywhere that children are that I could take them? And so we t told them to send them down to the DIGE, the Aboriginal organisation that supports Aboriginal kids. <coughs> and she did. But out of that, then she, because she said, would it be a good idea if they had somewhere to come that we can do training education? And that's how she started that house. It wasn't she started the house and we spoke to her. It actually, we shifted her in that conversation. And when she comes down here to lobby parliament as a victim of crime, because she's a victim of crime, her business had been broken into a number of times, People think she's out of her mind. She's like, she's out there, I'll give her that. But I mean, <laughs> probably, probably they say we're, we're out there, but it's a different type of out there. <laughs> and that's the work, right? It's about reimagining communities and having those conversations. And that's what End Toxic Prisons has done. Um, but I'm going to come back to the question, Nico. I just wanted to say that, yeah. Um, well, it's about having conversations, hard conversations um, that are framed in abolition for people to understand instead of freaking out about, you are trying to tear down my world. Well, yeah, but let's talk about it in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> so it, the question was around, um, you know, what does it look like, abolition? And, well, what it looks like for me, looks like for me is actually freedom. Yeah, it really is as simple as that. Freedom from punishment, revenge, surveillance, exile state sanctioned violence and death and the binary of good and bad. There's this temptation for people to want a shopping list of what an abolitionist future will look like. And yeah, I get that. Everyone wants a little shopping list, tick off how to do it, right? Let's get a plan. But what we are proposing sounds radical. At least it is a radical departure from where we are right now. We're asking people to divest from systems of control, containment, punishment and pain, scarcity and harm, and focus on abundance and healing. The beauty and strength of abolition is that we get to collectively dream and conspire together. There will be no one-size-fits-all replacement for what we have now and there can never be because we have to build it. You're listening to Let's Talk Black Power here on AAA Murray Country. We're sharing a recording from the Trans Prisoner Solidarity Fundraiser held here in so-called Brisbane last Friday night. And we're going to pick up with the powerful question what it means to organise and agitate for worlds that don't yet seem possible. Erica Miners says, liberation under oppression is unthinkable by design. So an abolition politic insists that we imagine and organise beyond the constraints of the normal. In the powerful work that all of you do, what are the sum of the abolitionist ways you imagine and organise beyond the constraints of the normal? In the centre that I work in, we do a lot of um, reports with community. We centre abolition and we do it whether it seems like it's a natural location for it or not because it always is. Um, everything that we do is with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. But the idea of what we can do needs to be counted by what's missing um, and it needs to be counted by what expands people's um, um, horizons. And we've, we've got a couple of functional issues. Um, a lot of... Uh, I'll, I'll 
talk later about the, the trans community in Medicare um, and is issues with the prison system, but you know, we've had a couple of reports that have come out, national reports that have come out recently, that just completely missed talking about anybody in prison. Tr reports about and by trans people, including Trans Justice Project. I'm unapologetically pissed off with them for not giving a f about people in prisons. Um, no mention, slight mention of police, that's it. Um, how do you do that? All of us mentioned it in the feedback, it didn't come through in the report. We can't have that and we've got to call it out. Um, it's an ethically compromised um, report anyway and the ethical compromising is something that I pay a bit of attention to because the system forces us into these things. When we get to use the system um, and the things that they say they're going to do against them. That's where in Medicare we might say, uh, okay, you're saying Medicare is not available for trans prisoners, um, people who are in prison, who, who are trans, okay, um, but gender-affirming care is primary care and primary care is available. So where does, so, so the que it always has to come back to them responding to the, to the questions that we have, not us proposing solutions. But when it comes to, to reports like the Trans Justice Project's report, um, you know, it didn't ask about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There was a shying away from the idea that somehow this would be too difficult um, and yet they've been wandering around reporting on how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are, um, you know, responded. There's absolutely no evidence for that. So there's this kind of bad actors process in this that we're de so desperate that we're willing to take it on. We're willing to say, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is the only report that's ever talked to 3,000, it's 1,400 trans people with 3,000 people generally to talk about what it is to be trans in this continent. But, you know, that's not good enough. We need to do more and we need to centre. So what we do as a centre, um, and we didn't start that long ago, whether it was really led by Maddie Day doing this, um, but Han does it, I do it, Bron, sorry, distinguished professor Bronwyn Carlson does it. We make sure in everything that we're doing, we're not just centering what it is to be abolitionist, but we're also talking about the experience of people who are incarcerated or previously incarcerated. Um, and we have to, and we've made a blunder with not doing that until the last three years. So, um, but I, I still challenge that people are not doing that when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander reports. But, you know, these reports that are commissioned by these organisations are not doing it. They're not doing it strategically. Um, and they're not doing it across trans and gender diverse people who are not um, mob either. You know, so they're not doing it in that space either. And what... And the reason um, is that they, they think it's too tricky or they think, and we know that this is fundamentally the problem for people who are subject to, you know, the prison industrial complex, is that there's this notion that if you just get everything set up for people who are on the outside, then it will work. There'll be a kind of trickle-down effect. Medicare shows us that that's not true, um, but everything shows us that that's not true. You know, and a report that fails to even, even think about what it means for trans and gender diverse people to be in prison does that too. And I'd say that I think we've been pretty bold with the Parents of Gender Diverse Kids project where we are talking about prisons. And we got a lot of kickback for, from that, not from PGDC, but from others, saying, oh, maybe you don't want to talk about that. Guess what? We asked 200 people 
who gave us their feedback, and it, it popped up in that. You can't not report on that. You can't go, that's a bit unseemly. Um, but that's the idea, you know, it's this idea that maybe we don't want the media to get hold of this. We can't do that. We've got to challenge the media when they get hold of truths. Yeah, anyway. So for me, prisons, policing and colonial law is, a relatively, young, is relatively young in this country. Aboriginal people functioned without a castral system and had their own models of transformative and restorative justice, words that we use now. Um, obviously not their words. Um, that kept them in this country safe since the very first sunrise. I think it's, it's essential that liberation is led by First Nations people in this country, who particularly have an analysis and understanding of abolition in practice. It is the only way to imagine and, organi and organise outside of the colonial constraints. Liberation is a collective process. We will have to work together if we're going to be able to respond simultaneously to individual and systemic violence to transform communities and eradicate the structures that enable violence in the first place. <coughs> Sorry. One of the greatest issues as a society that we face is our failure to build a culture of care that nurtures human growth and potential rather than incubating desperation. This state ha um, has facilitated this in such a way so that they can produce more quote-unquote criminals to be punished to the great benefit of those who profit from industries associated with incarceration. But we all know prisons are not an effective, an effective way to address violence. And yet, when we speak about the abolition of the prison industrial complex, people react as though the idea is radical and unthinkable, as if prisons, policing and surveillance are part of a natural order that simply cannot be undone. We have been conditioned to accept social control, which is enforced by people with guns, because we've been taught to fear each other and to acquiescee to authority. We live in a culture that celebrates criminalisation, cops and prisons. It's time to look hard at how this system came to be, who profits, how it functions and why, and it's time to imagine what it would look like to see justice done without relying on punishment and the barbarity of carceral systems. I recall when I first started organising, like in my own my own actual human me, not, not my father's daughter, it was me, Ruby, uh, the organiser. When I started doing that, I was the youngest one. I was a baby, I was 14, and hanging out with people that are 10 and 15 years older than me. I was very fortunate enough to be exposed to a lot in my life. My family grew me up around Native Title meetings, really messy places to be, really, really messy, messy places to be. I've grown up knowing the 10 Embassy and my family being a part of the national dialogue quite well. So I got to witness and be in a lot of spaces. I've seen through my organising years as I've grown up what does and does not work. And unfortunately, like, I really hate the word nationalist, but I'm a sovereign black nationalist and that's what I discovered through my organising. I don't agree with socialism. Socialism is not sovereignty. And unfortunately, through my organising, as people in my age group have come up, that is a conversation that we have had to have. They've come into it as socialists with whole colonial internal bullshit that they haven't unpacked yet. And that has hindered processes. 
So the one way that I've been able to effectively organise is have those really disgusting conversations of, hey, have you checked your politics yet? And have you actually like, unpacked your identity politics? Have you actually done the work to know what work we got to go do now? And unfortunately, that doesn't mean voting yes. That doesn't mean building better prisons. It doesn't mean, like... Like, I don't know what more you guys want to appeal to your oppressor. That's the context. They don't care. The only power that we have is our collective imagination in this context. And I rely heavily on my collective power. I'm, most of my ideas are flops. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the person on the front line who's ready to do the first swing. I'm not the creative idea chick at the back. I need... I need my creative mob with me organising. I need other abolitionists who have experienced other things in their communities organising with me. So that was the third part of the Trans Prisoner Solidarity Fundraiser panel that we recorded on Friday, the 2nd of February. If you've just tuned in to Let's Talk Black Power, I've been playing excerpts from the incredible conversation on the show today. I'm going to go out this afternoon with a final segment from the discussion, focusing on the struggle for trans justice, both inside and outside the prison walls. Trans and gender diverse people in prison are often only spoke about in the frame of power over them. What prison they should go to, what violence they have or will commit. As a result, trans and gender diverse people in prison are left out of the conversation and are left out of queer and trans support and community spaces. As abolitionists, what are some of the crucial ways we can support trans and gender diverse people inside? And how can we support trans and gender diverse people to not be criminalized in the future, such as what you've pointed out, Sandy, gender affirming healthcare? Understanding the complexity of um Gender-affirming health care is important as well. You know, the complexity of it for people who are uh, in prison. Instead of just presuming that there's some kind of a solution that will form a report, that will form a... We know that the bottom line with this is there's only one thing that changes it, and that's listening to people. You know, listening to people's real experiences, not trying to come up with a fantasy solution, even if it's an abolitionist one. You know, it's listening to people. And when I was saying before about talking to um, talking to people in the criminology areas, broadly at universities, their their job is often um, about forming policy that gets take, taken up. Um, their work is cited. Um, they're doing all of this work that is deeply problematic often. But I want to ask them those questions. And following Ruby's line, this idea of just not assuming that they're bad guys, just going, actually, what would you do with this? How do you find a solution to this? What, do you, what would you do if this was your kid? And, of course, their solution to that is quite different to what it really would happen if it was their kid. But they're still important questions. Um, and I, so I think... This, this is the, the tricky part. I've got stuff to, that, I've, that I've written, but I'm just going to go off script again. Um, the colonial project of gender is a container. So naturally, prisons are perfect for asserting it. You know, everything that sits outside of the colonial project generally um, is either erased, dismissed, 
gaslit, uh, seen as problematic, uh, people are thrown to the wolves. You know, this is just standard practice. It's another day in the colony, you know, and it always has been. Um, so anything that disrupts the containers um, is going to be work that works. And we know that that has to be not, oh, if you come in and you're on uh, X medication, then this is the solution. Because it's not the solution for everyone, that people do make really complex decisions that are not just about maintaining gender-affirming care. And I think we all know that. We all know that there is a real complexity to how this works for people, um, but there is a fantasy around it. And, you know, the sort of key thing is, like, when people talk about the Medicare thing, um, you know, this, uh, I'm sure that most people in the room, if you don't, um, please please have a look at it, um, would know that, um, that, that people who are incarcerated do not have access to Medicare. They have access to, to something, some kind of health care that's provided by the state. Um, it varies, um, but it's not the same as Medicare, and Medicare is terrible in itself for trans-affirming care. Um, but you know what? Maybe what happens for people who are incarcerated can be better than what happens for the rest of us. That would be great. We do this all the time when we do anti-colonial work in our centre. We say, well, actually, we can just be better than everyone else. We can lead this, and we can do this as well. We can just say this can be solutions that we work out for people who really need to have bespoke solutions. Um, and, you know, uh, and again, I go back to Dr. Shaq Bell's um, Trans-affirming care or gender-affirming care is primary care. This is primary care, whatever it looks like. And we have to keep insisting on that and we have to keep challenging it. Um, and we have to challenge the system that is always going to see anybody who's incarcerated as an afterthought. But you know what? The vast majority of people who are incarcerated, hopefully, are previously incarcerated at some point and we have to create a pathway that's about... Medicare as well. I guess I, Sandy knocked it right on the head. I don't have anything else to contribute other than to challenge each other to be better humans and to just constantly affirm our trans people, our trans friends, our trans loved ones' identities in every aspect of the way. Um, I did work inside a supporting people inside a prison for a very small period of time, and did get to support one amazing person that we both worked with. And the things that he experienced in his life and in during that time were just nice things because he had somebody like Nico going in and seeing him. And that was the things that made maybe made him get through the next day, you know, to know that and I, sorry, sorry to drop that little surprise there, but that really mattered. And the things that Nico did, her presence inside, <laughs> she's honestly probably one of the most like iconic people to ever go through those doors and, and has made a lot of people's lives easier in there, in, in that place. Sure All the best looks. Like, it was, it was really quite an honour to see her be so well received by all our sisters inside and just the teachings that she 
just her presence alone changed a lot of minds. And and these are people that society just thinks to forget, that they're not worth educating, that they're not worth exposing everything to. They're just bigots. Let them be bigots. Let them be caged animals. No, they are the most human people of us all. The generosity, the depths that they go to, how they maintain their relationships, how they live their day-to-day lives is a testament. And it was, it was truly amazing to see the impact that trans people have in the abolitionist community, how gender diverse people and trans folk in prisons are valued and that I, I was able to witness this value and then know this person and then be employed by this person, pretty wild. Um, but it's just... If we can affirm their identities and just talk life to them when they cannot and they don't have the power to, that is our job. That's our job in this phase of the revolution. Remember, we're not going to be able to see the end of this line, unfortunately. This is our phase and this is our responsibility. We've got to lift that heavy, heavy weight five, five times five reps that's five reps and five sets to get strong we got to do that we got it so that means we got to be affirming things 24 7 there's no rest for us we got to be completely lifting that iron and that's it thanks Reeves. thanks sandy and you know i'll always take um the lead from trans and gender diverse community on this one and i want to call out to um sisters inside staff some are here tonight who are uh, gender diverse and who always poke me if I like I've been around for a long time so I was socialized you know 60 years ago so I've got some wild thinking that happens in my head or you know old things that pop up when you get older you say things and you go my grandmother used to say that it's like that is not right you know so it's about I'm always learning and unpacking so Sash up the back who I always Sash and I have lots of conversations in the office <laughs> and Rubes and Bridge and um, Nico, who, but what I do want to say um, in regards to this question is um, what I do know is that systems of criminalisation and incarceration pose, uh, pose constant pervasive tr- threats to trans liberation. Police and prisons lock up trans, pe- pay, trans people, they cut them off, cut you off from your community and um, they strengthen and embolden the state at the expense of their economic and political freedoms while threatening the heart and life of trans political movements. Police and prisons unjustly endanger the vulnerable and disenfranchised and for trans people of colour in particular policing and imprisonment come with deadly consequences. I'm committed to supporting the building of a trans and queer abolitionist movement, movement by supporting the building of power amongst all people facing multiple systems of oppression in order to imagine a world beyond mass devastation, violence and inequity that occurs within and between communities. The abolitionist movement calls upon us to value the sanctity of human life, regardless of race and sexuality. And I want to work to secure that sanctity for everyone. We are fighting for a complete and thorough abolition of the inherently anti-black, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, racist institutions of policing and prisons and other institutions of castral violence. Because racism, sexism, homophobia and transphobia in the criminal legal system cannot be excised because they are the foundational of it. 
There is no way it exists without these systems of domination and it was established to enforce them. As a community, gives, abolition gives us an opportunity to challenge ourselves once again and again and again and each other over and over to craft a world where we are not only free to live as we all please, but also have the resources and support systems for those lives to be safe and comfortable. You've been listening to Let's Talk Black Power on AAA Murray Country. Huge thanks to the incredible panel, Professor Sandy O'Sullivan, CEO of Sisters Inside, Deb Kilroy, myself, and facilitated by the brilliant Nico Brocky. A reminder that if you're listening in and you're inspired, this event was partly set up to support the work of Incarcerated Trans and Gender Diverse Community Fund. If you want to support their work, head over to AAA website and you'll find a link in the podcast note, podcast episode from today. I'll be back on air next week with another episode of Let's Talk Black Hour. Yeah, No more whispering in our mind. Let's Talk, Monday to Friday at 9am no on AAA Murray Country the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.